Today we are continuing our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are getting very near the end of the book. This morning's passage is actually the, the last words the preacher speaks to us directly. And the, the last part of chapter 12 that we'll look at next week is kind of an epilogue or a reflection back on what the preacher has said. As we wind down, just like any good uh, writer or speaker, the preacher is getting to the nub of his argument and his message. And so as won't be a surprise for you who've been following along, the preacher is going to talk to us this morning about death. He's going to call us to remember death. And yet he's doing this as a way of helping us to enjoy life. He's showing us that one of the ways we live wisely in this world that that doesn't make sense and doesn't make sense because of death is by living in the knowledge of death and living in the knowledge of the God who created life and to the God to which we will return when we die. So with that, let's read this passage. We're going to go back and pick up the, the very last verse we included in our last week's passage, chapter 11, verse 7. And we'll read to chapter 12, verse 8 of Ecclesiastes. If you're following along with a Bible you got off the back table or a Bible we've given you, you can turn to page 559 and find the big number 11 and scroll down on the page until you find the little number 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light of the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. In this passage, we see the preacher giving us two commands. He tells us to rejoice, and he tells us to remember. He tells us to rejoice in the years God has given us, and he also tells the young to rejoice in their youth. 
But as we rejoice in this life, we're to remember. We're to remember that the dark days are coming and they are many. And he also tells us to remember our creator before these days come. Rejoicing and remembering are keys to life under the sun. And we'll use these two commands to organize our time together. We're going to work through this as kind of a a rejoice sandwich with remembering as the bread. All right. So first we'll see remember the days of darkness. Rejoice in God's gift of life and remember your creator. Remember the days of darkness. Rejoice in God's gift of life. Remember your creator. Those will be the three headings that we'll organize our time together under. So first, remember the days of darkness. We're supposed to remember, he says in verse 8, that these days of darkness will be many. That leads us to ask, what are these days of darkness? The time periods mentioned here are not always clear as to exactly what they're referring to. It may may at first appear he's contrasting uh, the days of youth with the days of old age. So maybe the the days of light are times when we're young and healthy, and the days of darkness are times when we're old and things are harder. But when we look at verse 8, the contrast seems to be starker than that. The preacher tells us in verse 8 to rejoice in all of our many years, both young years and old years, right? We're supposed to rejoice in the long life that God may give. These many years are contrasted with the days of darkness. In chapter 12, he says to remember our creator before the evil days come, the days in which we have no pleasure. And then he gives us an image in chapter 12, verse 2, of a a darkened sun and moon. These are images actually of the, the prophets that the prophets used to describe a cosmic judgment when the sun and moon no longer give their light. It's an image of a, a point of no return, a point when judgment has come in a decisive way. So I think the darkness we're meant to remember are actually days of death and judgment that will follow life under the sun. We're meant to remember that our lives, however long they may be, are going to be followed by an even longer time in the grave. Well, that doesn't seem like a very cheerful way to live. So how does this help us? How does remembering darkness help us? Well, remembering our days of darkness helps us by exposing what our worst problem is. If you think about the the big problems in your life or you think about the challenges you face as you try to follow the Lord, likely what's going to come up for you are your circumstances. You might think about how busy you are, how demanding your job is. You might think about the, the difficult relationships in your life or the burdens you carry as you try to care for your parents in their old age or young children. You might think about health struggles you have. You might think about the lack of money that you had and how, how much easier life would be if you had more of it. A lot of times the things we're consumed with as a, a kind of big problem in our lives are the things that we want but don't have. 
Now, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's, he's sympathetic with the, those kinds of suffering. He's, he understands life that doesn't pan out. He understands hard work that doesn't go the way we thought it was going to go. But as much as he acknowledges these things and knows that they're hard, he also knows that there's a, a bigger problem underneath all these other problems. The preacher knows that our sin against God is our greatest problem. To remember the days of darkness means to to live life knowing that our sin against God is our greatest problem and that our sin against God deserves judgment. We don't explicitly see the word sin in our text, but there are a couple of places that make it clear that that sin and judgment are in the background. For one place is uh, chapter 11, verse 9, where the preacher says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. The preacher tells the young man to live his life, but do so knowing that God's judgment is coming. You're going to be judged for what you do. God's judgment against sin is revealed to us in the Garden of Eden. You hear hear the words um, that he says to the young man to, to walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. It even evokes the language of Eve's sin in the Garden. So in chapter 3, verse 6 of Genesis, we read that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate. We see Eve here walking in the ways of her heart and in the sight of her eyes. But she didn't do so considering God's judgment. Despite what God had said, despite warning about the judgment to come from eating, she took and ate and she gave it to her husband and he ate. And God did judge them. We read in Genesis that God pronounced a death sentence on Adam and Eve and he exiled them from the garden. And when he kicked them out of the garden, he placed an angel at the entrance to the garden wielding a flaming sword. This removal from the garden wasn't just a kind of neutral relocation plan. It was judgment. It was exile from God's presence. One writer put it this way, that the only way back into God's dwelling place is to pass through the flaming sword of judgment. And we know from the scriptures that everyone who's been born since Adam and Eve... We inherit their their sin problem, their sin nature. And we sin because of that sin nature. We also live under God's judgment. Sin is our biggest problem. Sin has turned this world into the hard-to-understand mess that Ecclesiastes puts its finger on. We also see allusions to the judgment of Adam and Eve in verse 7 of chapter 12. As the preacher concludes his poem about death, he says that the dust returns to the earth as it was. Again, this is language taken straight from Genesis. This is the language God used to to curse the serpent. He would crawl on its belly in the dust. And it's also the language that God used to describe Adam's death. 
God said to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what's the fair and righteous punishment for sinning against the God of life? God is the good and gracious one. He made us. He made us out of the dust of the earth and he he gave us good things. He gave us a calling in the garden to, to work it and keep it. What should be the reward for forsaking that good God? Well, the answer is death. The return to the dust from which we were made. The righteous response of God to our sin against him is that he should expel us from his goodness. The righteous thing would be for us to only encounter God in his wrath for all eternity. We can sum that up in terms of physical death and spiritual death. That is the judgment that sin deserves. That's our biggest problem. That's the ultimate reason for the preacher's pronouncement that everything is vain. Our sin is the problem that outranks every other problem. That's why we face death, because of our sin against God. That's why we need to remember these days of darkness. And the ultimate reason to remember these days of darkness is not so that we will wallow in self-pity or feel really bad and depressed. Remembering the days of darkness should lead us to repentance. The days of darkness are meant to show us the depth of our sin and they're to call us away from the way that leads to death. Repentance is a really important idea for sinful people like us to understand if we want to draw near to God. So I want to take a minute and just try to unpack what it means to repent. Already this morning, we've recited from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and this catechism is part of a larger group of documents that includes the Westminster Confession of Faith. It may seem odd for us to always be bringing up these old documents, but one of the, the good things these documents do is they provide us with the reflection of very godly people who really knew their Bibles. So the Westminster Assembly was a group of these, these men who gathered together, and they tried to hammer out the gospel and its implications for Christians and their life together as a church. So I was helped this week when a, another pastor on Twitter mentioned the, the Westminster Confession of Faith's teaching on repentance. You can find this if you, if you look up the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 15 of the Confession. And the Confession starts off its teaching by saying that repentance is a gospel grace. Here's how one commentator who explained what the Confession is saying. He says, Repentance is a gospel grace because repentance involves believing something about ourselves and something about Christ. So to repent, to to have repentance, you have to believe something about yourself and about Jesus. Repentance is a gift of God. And when God gives you this gift, you're able to see the depth of your sin. You're able to see how evil it is and what it deserves. You're believing something about yourself. To repent is to, is to take God's side against yourself. And it's also to believe something about Christ. It's to believe that Christ's work on the cross was the satisfaction of God's justice. 
And so that by faith in Christ, you can be forgiven of your sin. Repentance is a grace. It's a gift of God to you to help you see the truth of yourself and the truth of Jesus. If you feel that repentance is hard or you don't know where to begin with repentance, one thing you can do is simply pray and ask God to give you repentance. Pray, Lord, help me believe the truth about myself and my sin and the truth about Christ. Ask God to grant you the grace of repentance. The Confession of Faith continues by saying that by repentance, a sinner turns from all his sins to God in the realization that God promises mercy in Christ to those who repent. Repentance turns you to God, trusting that God will give you mercy through Jesus. It says the sinner is so grieved for his sin, and he hates sin so much, that he determines to walk with God in all the ways that God commands. So repentance involves this reorientation of life where we begin to to hate our sinful ways and love God's ways. Because of our hatred of sin and our faith in Christ's sacrifice, we strive to do what God's commands and to love what God's commanded. So if you want to know, are you repenting? You could ask, do I grieve for sin? Am I growing in my hatred of sin? And am I growing in my love for what God loves? Maybe when you first began to encounter God, God's ways seemed like a burden to you. But as you've grown in following God, you begin to see the loveliness and the goodness of God's ways. You begin to see the goodness of loving others. That's where repentance leads. The confession goes on to say that repentance is not a work that saves us, Only God's grace saves us. Yet because of our sin, there's no salvation without repentance. There's no salvation without seeing our sin for what it is and and seeing Christ for who he is. But I've gone through all this stuff with the confession to get to this one thing the confession says that was really encouraging to me. It says this. No sin is so small that it does not deserve damnation. Nor... Is any sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent? See, remembering the days of darkness shows us that even the smallest sin against a good God rightly condemns us. No sin is so small that it does not deserve damnation. And yet, no sin is so great that it can bring damnation on someone who truly repents and trusts in Christ. Another way to put it is to use the words of another old uh, dead Englishman, Richard Sibbs, who said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. God's grace is so great, and Christ's work on the cross is so perfect and complete that none of us are beyond salvation no matter the greatness of our sin. If we remember the many dark days and we turn from our sin and we trust in Christ, He will save us. That is God's promise in the gospel. God saves those who repent and turn to Christ. So remember the the many days of darkness so that you can repent and turn to Christ.
Remembering the days of darkness shows us the great treasure that salvation is. Paul describes salvation as to be transferred from the domain of darkness, from the power of darkness, into the kingdom of the beloved Son. If we don't understand the the darkness of darkness, if we don't understand the ugliness of our sin, then we won't value God's grace. We might think salvation is cheap and unimportant. If we're feeling lukewarm in our walk with Christ, like maybe we're just going through the motions, it very well may be that we don't have a clear view of the depth of our sin. It may be that repentance is rare in our lives. So pray for repentance. Pray for the gift of joy in Christ. Pray to have eyes to see what a kind and gracious God we serve. To seek this is to seek the fear of the Lord, which means to tremble at God's goodness. God hasn't left us in our sin, but in Christ, he's come to rescue us. So remember the days of darkness so you can glorify the God of grace with the life you have. Remembering the days of darkness also helps us to work while it is day, as Jesus said. God has given us, as his people, a job to do. He's made all of us, each one of us here in this room who follows Christ, he's made us an an ambassador of the gospel, a minister of reconciliation to God. He's entrusted us with the great commission. He's called every Christian to do the work of gospel ministry. He's called us to build up the body of Christ by speaking the truth in love. That's not just the elder's job, that's everyone's job. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He gave the elders to the church to equip you to do the work of the ministry. If we don't have a sense of the days of darkness, if we don't have a sense of sin and judgment and the fight that we're in, we won't feel the urgency of the calling God's put on our lives. We will find a million other things to do. But if we remember, if we remember the many days of darkness... We're going to be more faithful to proclaim the good news to each other in the church and to our unbelieving neighbors. We're going to want to proclaim repentance and salvation in Christ's name. And so because we remember these days of darkness, we will speak the truth in love to our brothers and sisters. We'll speak up to our neighbors about the truth of the gospel. We'll use the years we have to preach Christ. Do you have this urgency? If you think about this image of many days of darkness, we know as believers these many days of darkness are are temporary. They end and they give birth to days of light in God's presence when Jesus returns. But consider your neighbors who don't know Christ. The many days of darkness for them will have no end. Brothers and sisters, remember the many days of darkness. Today is the day to take the gospel truth that God has given you and pass it on to others that you know. If you've not repented of your sins yet and trusted Christ, you desperately need to remember the days of darkness. Today is the day to turn to Christ. Pray to the Lord. Confess your sin to him. 
Come to him on the basis of what Jesus has done. Believe the promise of God that he'll receive all who come to him in the name of Christ. Know that if you come to him, God will clear you of your guilt and make you his child if you trust in Jesus and his work on the cross. Remember the days of darkness and repent of your sin. It's because we're remembering the days of darkness that we can rejoice in life. That's the preacher's second command, to rejoice in God's gift of life. The preacher tells all people in verse 8 of chapter 11 to rejoice in the years of their lives. And he tells the young especially to rejoice in their youth. I think it's very likely these are saying the same thing. As long as you have life and any measure of health, enjoy it. Rejoice in what God has given you. We've heard this throughout Ecclesiastes. The the preacher's message has been punctuated with these calls to enjoy life while you have it. But in this passage, I think he expands a bit for us on how we're to do that. In verse 9, he says to walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Now, we've already accounted how, in Eve's case, this led her to her sin. She saw the fruit, it seemed good to her, seemed pleasurable and desirable, so she went after it. But this doesn't have to be sinful. This combination of heart and eyes in Scripture, it's a common combination, and it's a way of describing complete involvement of the whole person in, in some activity or pursuit. So it's used both positively and negatively. Let me just give you a few examples to give you kind of a flavor of of how heart and eyes go together. Psalm 19.8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Here's a negative one from Jeremiah 22.17. But you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Here's another negative one, Psalm 36, 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So again, the combination of eyes and heart is a scriptural way to talk about complete involvement in something. And it describes what we perceive and what we desire. And this perceiving and desiring are not things that happen accidentally. So we look for what we want to see. We want the things that we put before our eyes. There's an element of our will here, our our morality. So the work of our eyes and our heart, they, they form us and shape us, but they also reveal what we're pursuing. We've also seen this combination of eyes and heart in this book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 2, verse 10, the preacher explained his whole project like this. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. The preacher is totally giving himself to this project of observing life under the sun. Now, is he telling us here at the end that we should do the same? Are we supposed to follow his example? I don't think we should, and here's why. The rest of verse 9 tells us that as we pursue our heart and what our eyes see, we're supposed to remember that we're going to face God as judge. The second part of verse 9 is, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. God will judge us for what we do with our heart and our eyes. 
So there's a question behind this call the preacher gives us to rejoice in life. What path of rejoicing in life are you pursuing? Are you filling your eyes and heart with the pleasures that come easily, that are here today and gone tomorrow? Are you looking for joy in what is holy or what is sinful? Are the ways of your heart based on the ways of God? Is is the sight of your eyes guided by what God says is good? Those are really the crucial questions. To have joy in this life that's lasting joy, eternal joy, our eyes and our heart have to be shaped by the wisdom of God. So another way to say this is, is your trust in God? Are you listening to what God says in his word? Does God guide your steps? Or are you walking by your own lights? Remember, the days of darkness are coming for all of us. There's going to be many of them. And so there's a way to rejoice in this world right here and now that will stand up to the judgment of God. And there's a way to rejoice in this life that will be consumed by the wrath of God. Which way are you rejoicing in life? Are you living to please God or yourself? The preacher expands on how to enjoy life in chapter 11, verse 10. He says that we should remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now, at first reading, it may sound like the preacher is just telling us to live our lives trying to avoid anything painful or disturbing. But there's a couple of things to notice here. The first thing is that the word that's translated pain in this verse is also translated evil in the very next verse. So there's more than just pain we're supposed to avoid. Second, the last clause of the verse is crucial for understanding it. He says, youth and the dawn of life are vanity. He wants us to see that the strength of youth is a fleeting thing. As we often say, youth is wasted on the young, right? Youth cannot sustain our hope and our joy. If your joy is based in your youthfulness, in your youthful energy and strength, or your youthful opportunities, one day those things come to an end. And if that's where your hope is based, one day you'll have no hope. And that's the perspective that helps us understand the rest of this verse. To remove vexation from your heart is telling us, don't spend your youth worrying about holding on to your youth. Put away pain from your body is telling us not to waste our youth on evil. I think the flavor of put away pain from your body is very close to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6. He says, let let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members uh, members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So how do we rejoice in the days of our life? How do we rejoice in our youth? Well, it's not by idolizing youth and strength. It's not by anxiously clinging to our health. And it's not by indulging evil. And this is totally opposite from the message that we receive from popular culture. 
I mean, we live in a world where youth is idolized. I didn't look up the statistics, but I'm sure we'd all be scandalized to find out the amount of money people in our culture spend to stay looking young. We're told that indulging the desires of our bodies is actually a morally righteous cause. And all of this has no reference to the judgment of God. The only judge of what is good seems to be what is good to you. What seems good to your eyes. What's good to the ways of your individual heart. The preacher's word is a warning to people like us living in an age like this. He's pointing to that path, a path that many of our neighbors are happily going. He's saying there's no joy down that path. There's no eternal joy down that path. Instead, the preacher wants us to see what we do with our eyes and heart will bring us into judgment. So he's calling us away, away from idolatry of that youthful life, away from holding on to our health, away from indulging in evil. And he's calling us from that so that we can find life, so that we can truly rejoice in God's gift of life. As we've seen it in other passages, the preacher calls us to enjoy life and fear God. The verses I just quoted from Romans 6 come in the context of the Apostle Paul calling Christians to live as those who've died with Christ to sin and who have been raised with Christ to newness of life. The message of the gospel for Christians is that God has set us free from the power of sin. And he's done this just as if we ourselves had been crucified and resurrected. So we should fix our eyes on what God has done for us through Jesus. And we should tremble at his goodness. We should fear God. We should consider all that we have. The whole person, body and soul. Consider that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because of that, we put our bodies to use for righteous causes. That's how we rejoice in the life God has given us. Is this how you're spending your life? In the words of the Apostle Paul, are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to righteousness? If you go back and examine your life, what does it show? Look at your online shopping, your browsing history. What do they show? Think about the things you worry about. What do they show? What have you put before your eyes? What seems pleasant to your heart? Are you desperately clinging to youth? Or are you enjoying God's gift of life? Are you indulging in sin? Or are you living as someone who's died to sin and is alive to God in Christ? preacher is pointing us in the way we need to go if we're going to rejoice in God's life, God's gift of life. We do that by faith in Jesus Christ. We're to rejoice in God's gift of life by faith in Jesus Christ. The last part of our remember, rejoice, remember sandwich is to remember your creator. This command comes in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. 
The rest of the passage is a kind of poem that's under this main heading. Remember your creator before the evil days come. And the preacher kind of piles on these images of, of death and desolation. And each one of these before clauses, the thing that he says is coming, is this some kind of a picture of death. I think we see him speaking in de- of death in both personal terms and in more world cosmic terms. So as an example of the personal would be verses 5 and 7. He says, desire falls because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. And the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit of- returns to God who gave it. So there's images of, of just us dying. We will die one day. We're to remember our creator before those evil days come, before death comes. But there also seems to be these images of, of cosmic destruction, of the sun and moon being darkened. Some of these images are ambiguous. So there are people who have interpreted the, the ceasing of the grinders as a, a metaphor for teeth. The old man has no teeth. Maybe that's right. But you can easily see this as an image of a, of a city that's closing down because it's under siege, like Jerusalem was. So maybe this is an actual image of a, of a city under, under God's judgment. But I think the, the best summary of these images is just, the preacher is telling us, you will die and the world is coming to an end. The evil days are coming. But again, even though the preacher's piling on these images of death, even though he's, he's pointing to a day when we'll be unable to, to change our circumstances because we'll be dead, he's not doing so to make us depressed or, or just to re, be resigned and kind of give up on life. His purpose is to tell us to do something to prepare for death. Remember your creator before death comes. Before the final judgment is struck against the earth, remember your creator. You were made from the dust, and you're returning to dust, and this should inform how you live today. Another, a theologian who captured the preacher's idea well is a man named Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer lived in the 1500s, and he was the first archbishop of the, the newly created Church of England. One of the things Thomas Cranmer left for us is this wonderful thing called the Book of Common Prayer. And if, you're, if you speak English and you live in the English-speaking world, then you've been influenced by the Book of Common Prayer, whether you know it or not. So if you've ever heard the, term, uh, the phrase, from ashes to ashes to dust to dust, that comes from the Book of Common Prayer, and it comes from the Book of Common Prayer's ritual for doing funerals. So you might have heard this on a TV show, and it comes from Thomas Cranmer. So he's this English, English reformer in the 1500s, and I find his reflections on death in his funeral service some of the most helpful for how to remember our Creator as to prepare for death. Let me just give you a couple of examples. This is the opening prayer. So as he has the, he, he kind of narrates it for you. If you read the Book of Common Prayer, he tells you as the, the priest is standing at the, the graveyard and the body is being brought in, he's supposed to speak these verses and he's supposed to pray this prayer. And here's what he says. O Lord, in the midst of life, we are in death. Where can we find comfort but but from you? Because of our sin, we stand before you as condemned by your justice. Yet, O Lord, God most holy, O Lord, most mighty, O holy and most merciful Savior, 
Deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. You know, Lord, the secrets of our hearts. Do not shut your merciful eyes to our prayers. But spare us, Lord most holy, O God most mighty, O holy and merciful Savior, you most worthy eternal judge. When we come to our last hour, spare us from your judgment, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is the man who knows that death is coming. Cranmer's prayer guides us into remembering our Creator before the evil days come. He confesses that even as we live in the midst of life, we are in death. That's probably something that a 1500s person knows a lot more clearly than we often know. But we do face death, don't we? And he's saying that we live before the face of a mighty God who knows the secrets of our hearts. And he knows that one day we will face him. We're going to face him. And as Cranmer calls him, he's the worthy judge. What else can we do but plead for mercy? Don't shut your ears to our prayers. He actually says, don't shut your eyes to our prayers, which I always find funny. But he says we remember our creator by remembering that he is a, a worthy God and a worthy judge and a holy and merciful savior. We prepare for that final hour by today relying on the mercy of God. In this same short service, in the closing prayer, we see the same dynamic at work with an even greater focus on the gospel. So Cranmer has the preacher pray, We humbly ask you, Father, to raise us from the death of sin unto the life of righteousness, that when we depart this life, we may rest in Christ. And we ask that at the resurrection on the last day, we may be found acceptable in your sight. What I want you to notice about these prayers, prayers prayed at the the graveside of someone who's died, they are not prayers for the dead person. They're not prayers for the person in the casket. These are the prayers for those gathered at the graveside, standing next to the open grave. They're prayers that God would prepare us for death. We need to prepare for death because even though death of this life uh, is is just the proper end that everyone faces, it's not the end of us. We're going to have our bodies die and return to dust, but our spirits, it says, return to God. So when that day comes, will you be resting in Christ? When that day comes, at your last hour, will you be found acceptable in the sight of God? We won't be found acceptable if we've devoted our lives to doing what we want and ignoring Christ. The scriptures tell us that we're all people born with a sinful nature, that we've all sinned against God. Just as we recounted earlier, we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Our hearts are set against God, and we naturally live by our own wisdom to fulfill our own desires. We've turned our backs on the mighty God and the most worthy judge. We won't be found acceptable if we live that way. And we won't be found acceptable before God on that day if we're trying to rely on the good things we've done. You see, no amount of good we can do can erase our rebellion. 
So if you're kind of awakening to your sin and God's judgment against you, the, the answer is not just to try to do more good stuff. If we try to come to God based on our own goodness, we're fooling ourselves. And we're actually turning away from the only hope we have, which is the merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. If we try to come to God in our own goodness, we're, we're trampling His provision in the dust. The only way to be found acceptable in God's sight on that day is to trust in Christ's sacrifice for sin and to receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. See, Jesus is the perfect man. When he lived on earth, he, he didn't sin. He never sinned. And he completely obeyed the Father. So he avoided everything that was wrong and he did everything that was right. And yet, he died the death of a sinner. God promises that those who trust in Jesus will be forgiven of their sin, forgiven of all the bad we've done, and will be counted as if we've done all of Jesus' good. We'll be justified. So if we trust in Jesus on that day then, that we die, we can stand up before God and trust that God accepts us because the risen Christ stands with us. And he stands to say, I purchased this sinner with my blood. He's clothed with my goodness. When we trust in Christ, in Christ's perfect sacrifice, his, his, his sacrifice becomes ours. His goodness becomes ours. This is the promise of the gospel. So we should ask, am I ready for that day? The preacher brings all of his observations about life to an end with the same way he began. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Every life will end in death. None of us can escape the, the humiliation of physical death. But there is more to life under the sun. The Spirit returns to God. Are you living as if that's true? When your family and friends gather around your grave, will they commit your body to the ground in sure and certain hope of your resurrection from the dead? Or will your life be more like a cautionary tale? Today is the day to remember your Creator. Today is the day to trust in Christ before the evil day comes. What's keeping you? from being saved by Christ. Before the evil day comes, put your trust in him. Let's pray. Our God, we come to you to thank you for our precious Savior. Because of his love for you and love for us took on flesh and died in our place. He clothes us with his righteousness. Even the very fact that we can come before you now in prayer is because we come in him, our great high priest. We pray, Father, you will help us prepare for that day. Help us to live our lives remembering that we will face you. Help us to enjoy life seeking you, 
and seeking Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.